2012, 101-2, where we'll read from verse 32 through verse 42. And we're going to do that in light of what it is that we confess concerning the suffering of Jesus Christ under Pontius Pilate and his crucifixion. Mark 14, beginning at verse 32. We'll read to verse 42, page 1012 in our Pew Bibles. And here we wish to read something of the suffering of Jesus Christ. Hear the word of God. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass him or pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Then turn with me in your... Liturgical Forms and Prayers books to page 216, 216 in the Trinity Psalter Hymnals, page 878. We're going to confess the answers to the questions of Lord's Day 15, the three of them, concerning the suffering of Jesus Christ under Pontius Pilate and his crucifixion. Lord's Day 15, we're going to answer these questions together, page 216 or page 878. What do you understand by the word suffered? That during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Then why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? So that he, though innocent, might be condemned by an earthly judge and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. And is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? Yes, by this death I am convinced that he shouldered the curse which lay on me, since death by crucifixion was cursed by God. This the church does believe. And brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ our Lord, as I was reflecting on what to preach in this service where we have been able to witness the profession of faith of our brother, 
my thought returned regularly to, to Lord's Day 15, which is the Lord's Day we're uh, at in our study of the Catechism. Last Sunday we had a bit of Christmas in August. We had Lord's Day 14. And Lord's Day 15, which may at first seem a strange Lord's Day to have as a text for a service such as this, a service that should be filled with rejoicing, filled with celebrating and honoring the God who has so worked in the life of one of His own to bring them to this place to make profession of faith. Yet in the profession of faith form, it seems to me there is warrant offered for this consideration. For in the form that we used in form number two, The form speaks of welcoming Dave to to the responsibilities of church life, to the joys of church life and church membership, as well as to the sufferings. The sufferings. That is often something that is mentioned in Profession of Faith services in the form for Profession of Faith form number one. 1 Peter 5 is quoted. And there we read, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After that you have suffered a little while. Suffering is something that is a part of our understanding of the profession of faith commitment. That when we make profession of faith before the face of God, we are committing to a lifetime of suffering. Though maybe not always in the way that we think. Oh, well, to be sure, there are brothers and sisters in the faith who, when they commit their lives to living for the Lord, may suffer physically, may suffer financially, may suffer even ultimately with their life. You think of the brothers and sisters who in Muslim faiths or in Muslim families leave the faith in order to join the Christian church and how devastating that can be in their relations with family and friends and their community. And you think of those in places of our world where it is illegal to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and you think there are indeed people who suffer a great deal for their commitment to Christ, not a suffering that we endure, not yet, not in this place. We live in a place of peace and prosperity. We live in a place of blessing. There are some dark clouds on the horizon, undoubtedly. Recently, a school trustee in B.C. posted a picture of a steamroller rolling over Christians and Christian values, a steamroller with a rainbow roller, with the LGBTQ image destroying Christian teachings and values. To be sure, there are some dark clouds on the horizon, but generally, as Christians, we don't suffer, not in that respect, in this land and in this culture. But that doesn't mean that we don't suffer. That doesn't mean suffering isn't a part of our lives. It's certainly a part of our lives in the physical uh, experiences of life, in the emotional experiences of life. There are pains and sorrows and griefs. Our souls can also be wounded and weary. But there's also the suffering of the call to sacrifice, of the call to service. There's the suffering of putting to death old natures, putting to death sin, humbling ourselves and crying out to the Lord, So that there is for all of us a way in which the Christian life is a a struggle, a a fight, a a demanding and, and challenging work. You can't coast through the Christian life. You can't float down the river of ease in the Christian life. Now, The Christian life is one of struggle. 
And it is so encouraging then, knowing that that is the case, knowing that that's what our brother Dave has committed himself to this morning, and that all of us who have professed our faith in the past have committed ourselves to, knowing that it is so encouraging to know that Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified. Because that suffering, that suffering defines, describes, and and determines what our suffering is all about, and it gives it such a blessedness, such a joy, such a worth, that in the end we say with James, I count it all joy when I suffer. We worship a Savior who suffers, which is sometimes for the world a confusing thing. The redeemers of our world, the heroes who save people in today's culture are always Glorious, majestic, mighty, strong, and powerful. Superman and Spider-Man and all the rest. And our Savior is a despised and forgotten one who is crucified on a cruel cross. One who was mistreated, beaten, and whipped. One who was forgotten and forsaken by His friends. The suffering of our Savior was very real. But it wasn't just at the end of his life, wasn't it? It wasn't just in that event of his dying that Jesus suffered. No, the suffering of Jesus Christ was much broader than that, much bigger than that. The Catechism makes the claim that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, suffered in a very unique way and in a very unimaginable way for all of us, in body and in soul, we're told, during his whole life. From conception, you, you, you realize, from the very moment of conception onward, Jesus Christ suffered. When the hymn writer says, no crying that baby Jesus made, that can hardly be true. Not only because children always cry, babies always cry. And Jesus was, like every one of us, a child, an infant but because from the very moment of conception, the judgment of His Father rested upon that flesh, that blood, that soul and spirit. From conception onward, God's wrath was poured out. And what is more, the Catechism claims that in so doing, Jesus bore what we could not, what we would not, what would have destroyed us eternally, He bore for us what we rightly ought to have drank from, that cup of God's wrath. Remember, every time a sin is committed, you might say that God puts a drop of His wrath, a drop is enough to kill you eternally, into that cup. And that cup, you might say, has your name on it. You have to drink that judgment. That's yours. The soul that sins shall die. And yet Jesus willingly took that cup for you and He said, I'll drink it to its very dregs. That's what Mark 14 tells us, doesn't it? Mark 14, those words ought to stun our hearts as Jesus there in the garden cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. To imagine that Jesus coasted through His suffering as though it was an easy thing, as though He was free from its pain, as though He had some stoical attitude, as though He could just say, well, it is what it is, I suppose, is to misunderstand Jesus' suffering. 
He drank the very dregs of God's wrath against your and my sin. He entered into the very darkest of places. He suffered the greatest judgment. And He did it, says the Catechism, in order to obtain for you and for me who believe in Jesus Christ God's grace and righteousness and eternal life. He did it so that we would never have to suffer ever that we would only enjoy blessedness from our Heavenly Father, that we would only enjoy fellowship and favor from our Sovereign God. That's what the Catechism challenges us to see. That's what the Catechism calls us to confess concerning the suffering of Jesus Christ our Lord. And we are challenged then in this morning's service to ask, are you willing to confess That that's the suffering of Jesus Christ for you. Are you willing to confess so great and glorious a truth about the suffering of Jesus so long ago? Now surely no one would deny that Jesus suffered. Not even the most hardened unbeliever or atheist would deny that Jesus suffered. At least if Jesus existed. They would say, if if there was a Jesus, then surely He suffered. Not that atheists or unbelievers are willing to confess what we confess. Not that they're willing to say something significant about this Jesus. But even the most hard-hearted sinner knows that this life is hard, burdensome, bruising. It doesn't always seem that way, does it? In the beginning of our lives, in our earliest days, it's full of wonder and possibility. Summers are these great times where we're free from the constraints of school and we can just run and play and enjoy life. There are moments, aren't there, when you sit beside a friend, beside a spouse with your children, grandchildren, watching the sunset, the glorious light of the day ending, And it feels like life is exactly the way it should be, that everything is perfect. And that nothing, no grief or pain could ever touch you there. And So much of our experience of life is indeed great and glorious, good and encouraging. But the longer we live, the more steps along the pathway of life we take, the more days that the calendar marks off for us, the more grief appears. There are griefs, sometimes hidden, sometimes on display. It's an illness. It's loneliness. It's a bully at school. It's a parent with anger issues. It's an abusive husband, a nagging wife. It's an emotionally unstable home. It is anxiety and mental health struggles. It's addiction. It's pride. It's selfishness. Everything can seem great on the surface of our lives, but behind the mask is the grief. And why is that? Why should a life so full of potential and promise be so hard? That's the $64,000 question. I suppose that's an outdated reference. Maybe we need to say now it's the $640,000 question. And the truth is, every religious system, every political system, every person in this world has an answer to the question as to why. Why Why do we suffer? Why do good things happen to bad people? Maybe we wouldn't phrase the question that way. 
But everybody wrestles with the issue. Everyone strives to understand why this world that has such promise is so painful. And everyone thinks they have an answer. Systemic racism is the answer. Oppression of the proletariat is the answer. Disparity in pay between men and women is the answer. There's no shortage of answers, even as there are no shortages of solutions. There are all sorts of programs, systems, plans, which if we just follow, if you just go this way, will make your life better. Go to the self-help section of the library or of the bookstore. It is full of different ideas, Look at your social media feed and see how many of the ads you receive tell you if you follow this program, you'll lose weight while you're sleeping. You'll get healthier and stronger. You'll be happier and more fulfilled. Everybody thinks they know the problem. Everybody thinks they have a solution. And none of those solutions is new. None of those solutions is distinct or unique. And none of them have ever managed to solve the problem of human suffering. Oh, the world says it knows the answer, but its answers are empty and often make the problem worse, not better. Have you never noticed that? Oh, just trust us, the leaders say. Just trust us. Just You'll see. It'll work. This time it'll work. How often haven't we heard that in these days? This time it'll work. And then we come to the house of God and we come to the place where the Lord speaks through His Word and the Word of God speaks to us an answer. It speaks to us an explanation. It says to us, if you want to know what the solution to the problem of suffering is, you need to understand what the problem is, what the cause of the problem is. And that the cause is not out there. It's not the systems. It's not the nations. It's not the financial circumstance of your life. It's not your spouse. It's not your children. It's not your parent. It's not your teacher. It's you. It's your heart. It's your spirit. It's that you are born in sin. And that sin always dogs your footsteps, grasps your heart, leads you astray, and brings you to a place of pain and suffering. For sin has never, always promises, never pays out. Sin always makes life hard. This is why the creation groans. This is why we groan. Why our hearts break. Why our eyes tear up. Why what should be so often is not and what should not be far too often is. This is why our souls are wounded. This is why our spirits are broken. The Scripture teaches that we will experience in this life pain and suffering in a million different ways, but it will all flow from the same source. Our, my rejection of God and His just and righteous condemnation of that rejection. And that's what makes you understand Jesus' suffering So gloriously remarkable. We suffer because we make poor choices. We suffer because others treat us poorly. We suffer because we live in a world that we have created, a world of hurt and pain, of hurt and hurting. Jesus suffered 
because he chose to. He didn't need to. Ever. He was not responsible for this mess. But he came into it. And he suffered more than anyone has ever suffered. Not just in body, stripes and the crown of thorns and the nails in his hands, but also in soul, lonely, forgotten, rejected, despised. And from the very moment of conception to the very end of his days, he suffered freely, willingly, choosing to endure all of that pain. And He suffered uniquely. Because He suffered as the atoning sacrifice sent by God to deal with your sins. To deal with mine. He came to pay our debt. He came to satisfy the Father. He came to empty that cup of wrath. He came to suffer so that you would never have to suffer again. But wait, you say, wait, what? So that we would never have to suffer again? No, 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 that's not possible. Doesn't that contradict the clear teaching of Scripture? Just read the Psalms. Read Psalm 88 if you dare. Read read the the book of Romans, chapter 5. Read the book of James, chapter 1. Count it all joy, brothers, when you enter into various, when you suffer various trials or trials of various kinds. The Bible says we're going to suffer. Surely, experience tells us we're going to suffer. Surely, surely we do suffer. It cannot be that Jesus suffered so that we don't have to suffer. Well, imagine two people, two people suffering. Let's talk about physical suffering to keep it simple. They're both tired. They're both weak. They're both in extreme pain. One of them is a prisoner of war, being fed limited rations, beaten daily, feeling like he's alone and forgotten, suffering under the cruel torment of his captors. The other is a professional athlete. He's up at the BioSteel Center in Toronto for the summer. He's training for the upcoming NHL season. And his body has been just drained. He has been put through the ringer. Every muscle is on fire. Everything hurts. Can you say they're both suffering? Would you say they're suffering the same? What about Lazarus and the rich man? Which one suffered? Well, it depends, doesn't it? Are we talking about this life or are we talking about the life to come? Think about Jacob the liar who deceived everyone, got everything he wanted, got rich, got the wife he wanted, got everything he wanted, escaped his brother's wrath by deceiving, by lying, by cheating. He was a scoundrel. He didn't suffer, did he? He didn't suffer until he met the Lord at Peniel. And the Lord touched his hip and dislocated his leg. Jacob had to limp the rest of his life. He had to suffer pain with every footstep. 
Except every step was a reminder of God's grace to him. Every painful moment was an encouragement to see God's goodness and grace. Don't you see that suffering is ultimately not determined by the moment, but by its cause and by its consequence? Why are we suffering? Outside of Christ, the answer is we're suffering because of God's wrath against sin. But if we are in Christ, if we are in Christ, then we are suffering for the shaping, strengthening, and equipping of our faith for the glory of God and for the eternal life for which we are being prepared. Outside of Christ, the unbeliever is suffering the beginning of their eternal judgment for their sins. But in Christ, these light and momentary trials and afflictions are preparing us for a greater weight of glory. The difference is our relationship with Christ and how we see the experience of this life. I'm sure it is still difficult to suffer. It is difficult to be wounded. It is difficult to experience pain, whether physical or emotional or spiritual. It's difficult to be alone. It's difficult to, to experience the crushing weight of so much of what this world is about. But don't you understand that in Jesus Christ, your suffering has been transformed? It is no longer suffering for judgment. It is suffering for equipping. You are that athlete getting stronger. You are that sinner being prepared for sainthood in eternity. And how do we know that this is true? How do we know that this is our experience? Seems to be a lot to pile on a first century Jew who died an ignoble death. Well, fine, if you don't believe me, then at least believe Pontius Pilate, who deserves or serves rather as a divine proxy in order to convince us that our Lord suffered as an innocent man, but who died under the just judgment of God. Pontius Pilate is the only other historical figure named in the Creed, other than Jesus, of course. We confess that there is a unique significance to Jesus' suffering under Pontius Pilate. And we do that because we confess that like all uh, elected representatives or governmental representatives, all authority within our lives, that authority has been established by God for the purpose of advancing His cause and His kingdom on this earth. So that we confess that as a representative of the Lord, Pontius Pilate stood in the place of God both when he declared Jesus innocent, and we shouldn't miss that, and when he condemned Jesus to death. Pontius Pilate stands as the voice piece of God, you might say, as the mouthpiece of God, God speaking through him. Pontius Pilate saying, this man is innocent. I find nothing in him worthy of this death, and yet still causing him to be crucified. So that we can know, we know for certain from Pontius Pilate himself that Jesus did not die because he had committed some crime, but died for altogether different reasons. And that's important you understand because our claim as Christians is not simply that Jesus died or even that he was cruelly killed by his enemies or even by his own people. That's not the claim we make. The claim we make concerning Jesus Christ of His suffering and death is that it was utterly unique in that He died as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
Yet what do we have to prove such a remarkable claim? Well, keep in mind two important principles revealed in Scripture about God and His demand for satisfaction. Remember that the debt must be paid by the debtor, by the sinner, by the one who has offended the judge of heaven and earth. That is a principle of Scripture. That's a principle of justice. No one else can suffer except the one who has committed the crime. But the Scripture also teaches us rather strikingly that that sacrifice, that atoning sacrifice, must be blameless, without spot, and utterly devoid of any offense. Remember the lamb that was to be brought on Passover night was to be without spot or blemish. Indeed, all of the sacrifices, they weren't to be the seconds in the flock or herd. They were to be the best. They were to be without lameness, without any kind of deformity or disease. They were to be perfect. Picturing for us the need for the sacrifice of our Messiah also to be perfect. So that the Scripture teaches us in the Old Testament and throughout that A, a criminal must die for his crime, but that his payment must be perfect, must be complete. There are no shortcuts, no cheating. It must be perfect. Which is rather challenging, don't you think? It is a rather difficult thing to obtain. Debtors we have in plenty, of course. Criminals who need to pay their debt we have a lot of. Criminals who can, should, and may one day be called upon by God to pay their debt we have in plenty. Not as many criminals do we have who serve as public figures. That is, people who can stand on behalf of others. There are still public figures, but not nearly as many. And not a single one of those public figures has ever been blameless without spot or blemish. So the Bible says we need a atoning sacrifice who is perfect and who is a sinner. You say, well, how can that be? How can we possibly achieve such a thing? And then Jesus Christ takes on flesh. And then Jesus Christ touches the unclean leper, becoming Himself by that ceremonially unclean, picturing for us the transfer of the guilt of sin to us. Then Jesus Christ stands before Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate says, but he's innocent and I will condemn him as a criminal. Pontius Pilate lends authority, legal authority, to the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus died at the hands of the Roman state of the legal authority established by God Himself. He didn't die at the hands of a mob. He didn't die in some grievous accident. He was put to death by a representative of God Himself. Jesus' death has a legal necessity to it. He had to die as a condemned sinner, not just as an enemy of some band of men. But he could not die for his own sin. He had to be both innocent and condemned. And Pilate declares to us that's exactly who he is. And that ought to be for all of us a profound comfort to know every time we use those words of Pontius, or we speak the name rather of Pontius, Pilate, that we are thereby reminding our own hearts, speaking to our own hearts, that though we are rightly deserving of judgment, when we stand before the Lord on judgment day, we need never fear. Because the judge has already spoken his word of condemnation and it won't fall on us. It has fallen on Jesus Christ. We are all under, you understand, the sentence of death and this justly. Each Lord's Day we hear the ten words of the covenant and we are or ought to be convicted. We have broken those laws. We have not kept covenant. We are deserving of judgment. 
We don't deserve life, life eternal or this life. And one day we will all have to stand, either because the Lord has called us home out of this life to stand before Him in heaven, or when Jesus Christ returns, when His judgment seat is established upon the earth and He calls all men to give an account of what they've done. Are you ready to stand before Jesus Christ on that day? Are you not terrified at that thought? It terrifies me. A thought that too often then tempts us to polish ourselves up and to prove our worth. That's what we so often try to do. That's maybe why we wear a suit or some attractive clothing to church. We're trying to look good. We're trying to be good. We're trying to prove our worth. Look at me. I'm a good person. Don't say bad things about me. We refuse to allow anyone to slander or condemn or criticize us because we are not bad people. We are not bad wives, husbands, parents, children. Oh, I know my children say bad things about me. It's not my fault. I'm not that person. I'm a good father. We so desperately need people to think that we're right. We find ourselves exhausted each day as we try to prove our worth. We get so quickly angry when somebody criticizes us. And then Pilate speaks. Pilate speaks. Into that moment, Pilate speaks. And he speaks words that assure us the spotless Lamb of God has died the death of a sinner. Has become sin for us. And therefore, though we are guilty, we will be declared free of the claim of the law. That the law no longer condemns us because Jesus came born of a woman born under the law that we might be adopted as sons of God. The Lord uses the voice of the tyrannical and godless of Pontius Pilate to assure us in our moments of fear and disquiet when the sins that we have committed jump to mind when we lay upon our beds and the thoughts of what we've done filter through our brain, when we remember the stupidity and arrogance and pride and sinful selfishness that He suffered under Pontius Pilate. And when you stand before the great King, either in heaven or on earth, The judgment you deserve will also will already have fallen upon him. And you will be welcomed as a son into the very presence of God. Ah, you say that's too much, isn't it? Too much to put on the death of one man. I mean, surely Jesus' death was just a travesty of justice, not a satisfying of it. Some say it was cosmic child abuse. Or it was just an example. That's all it is. I mean, it didn't do anything. It didn't accomplish all that. It's just Jesus died to show us how we should live our lives. Or maybe it's, maybe it's just a graphic warning. You know, those, those scared straight sort of things that people do. Maybe that's what God was doing with Jesus. He was trying to scare us straight. Look, if you people don't believe in Jesus Christ, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to end up on a cross. Smarten up or else. How are we to actually understand the death of Jesus on the cross? cross that so often for us has been sanctified, polished to a fine hewn, polished so fine that we wear it as jewelry. But the cross, oh, the cross for the early church was not something to boast about. The cross, the cross was the most awful way to die. Naked before the world, it would take days for criminals on the cross normally to die as the people walked by hearing the groans and cries of the people that were suffering there upon that cross. 
Crosses were so, so disturbing, so frightening, so soul-shaking that the early church had a hard time even talking about Jesus Christ's death on the cross. And that cross, you understand, is, 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 is more than just an efficient or even f- cruel form of death. It, it, it's, it's, it's even worse than we think. It's not just the Romans devising the most deadly way to expose a sinner and to convince everybody who sees him never to do that, never to do what he did. It is the symbolic representation of the very wrath of God against our sin, the very curse of God, the curse of death that we deserve. That's what the Scripture tells us about death on a tree. Whatever else the Romans were trying to do by crucifying criminals, long before they ever figured out to do that, God had explained that to die upon a tree was to be cursed. Indeed, think of Absalom. You remember Absalom, the son of David, how his glorious hair got caught in the tree and he was hanging. And then how he was killed. Hanging there, not on the earth, not accepted by, received by the people, not living amongst His folk in the fellowship of friends and family, rejected by society, we might say, and also rejected by God. Not in heaven. Not in heaven with God and His angels praising Him. Not on earth with His family. Not in heaven with His Father. Rejected by all. That is what the cross represents. The rejection by all. Rejection of those that fled from Jesus. Who stood at a distance but denied Him. And the God whose wrath wrung from Him the cry, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? The cross of Calvary says to us, this man was cursed. Cursed by God. The cross of Calvary tells us what the Scripture says, that when a man hangs from the tree, he's cursed. Jesus hung from a tree. He was cursed according to the testimony of Scripture. God Himself declaring to us, this Savior died under the curse of sin. And that ought to be for every one of us such a source of humility, of looking at the truth of our own condition and acknowledging with the publican of old, have mercy upon me, Lord, a sinner. When we see Jesus Christ upon the cross, bearing the curse of God against our sin, we ought to say, oh, what a Savior. What a gracious Lord. But we ought to also know this, that as surely as Jesus hung from the tree, The curse that we deserved was placed upon His shoulders and was finished. It is finished, He cried. It is finished. So that our suffering is never and can never be a consequence of the curse, we who believe in Jesus Christ. Oh, if we do not believe in Jesus Christ, if we haven't given our life to the Lord, then our suffering is a reminder. It is, you might say, the the smell of of the very fires of hell. You have that sometimes, right? Where you smell fire. You don't see it. You don't feel it. It's not there yet. It's not consuming you. But you can smell it in the air. The very fires of hell are experienced in the lives of those who don't know Jesus Christ, who haven't given their lives to Jesus Christ. When they suffer, then they suffer 
because God's judgment is upon them. But we who believe in Jesus Christ, who have given our lives to the Lord, who acknowledge Jesus Christ as our only hope and salvation, not perfectly, for even in our faith we are weak, not with the gratitude that, we de- that He deserves, for even in our obedience we are flawed, but as surely as we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, this we can be certain of, that His curse, or that the curse of God's wrath has been lifted from us by His atoning sacrifice, and we are loved perfectly by God in Jesus Christ, sons and daughters of the King, and that whatever the Lord is doing in our lives, whatever suffering we may be enduring in this life, it is not for our condemnation. It is for our strengthening, encouraging, equipping, and preparing for eternal life so that we can say, I count it all joy, brothers, when I face trials of various kinds. That I can rejoice in my sufferings because I know what suffering produces. It's not suffering because of God's judgment. It's suffering because of God's love. Of His strengthening me for service within His church and kingdom. For eternity with Him in the praise of His name. And it is with that in mind that we ought to hear those words in the profession of faith form which speak about suffering in the words of Peter. In 1 Peter 5, those words that remind us after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We all have to suffer because we all have to get strong. We all have to fight the good fight of the faith. We all have to put to death the old nature. We all have to live in praise for God. That's no easy thing for any of us to do. But Jesus Christ is worthy of all of our struggle and striving, of all of our service and sacrifice. For in Him we have perfect salvation. Let's thank Him for that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for